When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Ahmed Al-Jalad, Professor and Sophia Chair of Arabic at the Ohio State University. He is a philologist, epigraphist, and historian of language. His work focuses on the culture, languages, and writing systems of pre-Islamic Arabia and the ancient Near East. His book, The Religion and Rituals of the Nomads of Pre-Islamic Arabia, a reconstruction based on the Safavid inscriptions, was published earlier this year by Brill, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Ahmed, for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So first, to start off with, could you just sort of define the geographical and historical context of your research? So in the title of your book, you have this term, Pre-Islamic Arabia, what, where and when exactly do you mean by that? Yes. So uh, pre-Islamic Arabia uh, had different, had a different geographical, uh, uh, had different ge- geographical connotations for different writers. So for example, for Herodotus, pre-Islamic Arabia, or what he referred to as Arabia was mainly the Sinai Peninsula, Northwestern Arabia. Uh, other writers, as their knowledge of the Arabian Peninsula expanded, this term Arabia expanded as well to ultimately uh, encompasses the landmass between the Red Sea and the Perso-Arabian Gulf. Uh, The uh, book, uh, my book actually explores pre-Islamic Arabia based on the Safiitic inscriptions. And the Safiitic inscriptions, they're a pre-Islamic North Arabian writing culture that spans from the Syrian, uh, from the Syro, Syro-Arabian Harra, that is the black desert that begins south of Damascus and spans into northern Saudi Arabia. Uh, so when I'm talking about pre-Islamic Arabia, I'm focusing on what we would call today North Arabia. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, can you talk a bit more about the this corpus of inscriptions that you're working on? Um, you mentioned the language, but like, what does that actually look like? What do the inscriptions themselves actually look like? And what form do they appear? Where are they found? How many of these inscriptions are there? Yeah, so Safiitic is a, a modern label given to an indigenous alphabetic tradition used by the nomads of the Syro-Arabian Harra, the Black Desert of North Arabia. Uh, it is a 
consonantal writing system. That is, it only represents consonants in, uh, uh, of a language. Uh, and the language it encodes is an ancient variety of Arabic, of pre-Islamic Arabic. The uh, Safiyadic, uh, the term Safiyadic therefore refers to the alphabet itself and not the language. Uh, the language of these inscriptions is what I would call Old Arabic. The uh, Safiyadic is related to uh, or belongs to a group of alphabets that we call ancient North Arabian. And these, uh, these alphabets are found throughout the Arabian Peninsula from Syria to the borders of Yemen. And together with the alphabet of ancient South Arabia, they form a script family called the South Semitic script family. And this is a sister uh, alphabetic tradition to the Phoenico-Aramaic uh, alphabet that gives rise to uh, the Aramaic script, the Hebrew script, the Greek script. So this is a parallel sister alphabetical tradition. Both are related, both share a single common ancestor, Proto-Sinaitic. Uh, that is the first alphabet that seems, uh, the, the Ur alphabet, you can say, uh, that uh, developed sometime in the second millennium BCE. And so Safiyadic is one branch of ancient North Arabian. It, uh, the, within Safiyadic, there's a lot of, there, there, there are subscripts, you can say. There are different uh, styles of writing, different letter shapes, uh, but, all toge- but they, the, they all together form what we call the Safiyadic script. These texts uh, were carved, main, all, all the evidence that we have is that these texts were carved on rock, on basalt stone. The nomads may have written on occasion on perishable materials, but none of that survives. All surviving evidence is in the form of rock inscriptions. Uh, the dating of the corpus is incredibly difficult. The, a small minority of inscriptions uh, include dating formula. They, the authors will write which year they produced the text. And it, it seems that the nomads did not have a numbered calendar. They weren't using numbered years. So they would date their inscriptions to prominent events like the year the king of Nabatia died or the year Caesar announced the province or the year so-and-so died. And we don't know who this individual was. He must have been someone popular enough in the desert so that the audience would know the reference, but that's lost to history. We don't, we can't know anymore. But looking at these dated inscriptions, it seems that Safiyadic writers were particularly active between the first century BCE and the fourth century CE. Uh, But that's a minority of inscriptions. The vast majority of texts are not dated. And when we look at the writing formula used by Safiyadic writers and we look at the letter shapes of the inscriptions, they, it, the writing tradition seems most closely related to another ancient North Arabian script type called Thamudic B. And Thamudic B was used in North Arabia and also in, uh, in the Harra itself. And this corpus, the earliest inscriptions of this corpus seem to date to the first half of the first millennium BCE. So it would seem that you have a continuous writing tradition from the first half of the first millennium BCE that over time evolves into what we call Safiyadic, right? The boundary between Thamudic B and Safiyadic isn't entirely clear, but over time, this writing tradition evolves into Safiyadic and continues until we think the fourth century BCE, but that's a hypothesis. Uh, There's no real evidence that allows us to determine when Safiyadic writers stopped producing inscriptions. Scholars have suggested the fourth century BC, uh, the fourth century CE, excuse me, 
because there are there are no there's there's actually there's only one clear reference to Christianity in the corpus, and uh, if uh, if Sophistic writers continue writing into where Christianity became a you know, state religion of the Roman Empire, and it, uh, uh, we would expect perhaps more references to the faith, and there there's only one. So it seems that it may have the, the writing system may have uh, fallen into disuse around the fourth century. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so, can you try to paint a bit of a picture as to kind of where these inscriptions are found in kind of an archaeological context? You know, you mentioned that they're always found carved into rock, into basalt. Um, but then, where's where? Where is that? You know, is it in relation to settlements? Is it along migration routes um, near water sources? Are there patterns in terms of where larger amounts of these inscriptions are typically found? Yes, uh, very good question. The inscriptions can be found anywhere people spend time. And so where there were people, there seems to have been inscriptions. Inscriptions cluster around places like water sources because this would have attracted a lot of human activity. They also cluster in high places that would have been suitable for keeping watch. Uh, they cluster around cairns that were also built on high places. But you can find isolated inscriptions basically anywhere. And the vast majority of inscriptions contain only personal names, right? Just the individual's names. A small minority of texts contain any information beyond that. And the writing system was, or the writing tradition was uh, very formulaic. So it isn't that these, uh, so it isn't the note that the writers would go and produce whatever came to their mind. They weren't writing journal entries, but rather they were following, following strict formulaic uh, compositional formulae. And they would write about primarily uh activities that come with a certain degree of danger and uncertainty. So authors would be, and, and the Michael McDonald uh, puts forth a, a, a rather convincing hypothesis, I think, that writers would, while they were watching, uh, watching their herds or spending time at a place, would produce inscriptions to pass the time. And so it was that idle waiting that allowed them to produce these inscriptions, especially the very long ones. They would have taken an incredible amount of time to produce. Uh, Safiotic writers probably carved these inscriptions using uh, other rocks or flint, and it was a very laborious task. It took a long time to do. So that I, those those long spans of idle waiting would have given them the perfect opportunity to produce these texts, and so. The big question in, in Safianic studies is why did writers produce these texts? Why did they carve these inscriptions? Uh, when we look at their contents, uh, most of the inscriptions deal with uh, uh, dangerous activities or activities involving uncertainty. So, for example, setting off on migrations, uh, recording setting off for a raid, uh, awaiting the rains. Usually the rains are delayed whenever they write that they're waiting for the rains. They're complaining that the rains have not appeared at the correct time. And so they're worried. Uh, pasturing animals. And pasturing animals is an incredibly dangerous activity because your animals are uh, threatened not only by predators, but also by enemy tribes who raid you and, and take off your livestock. 
So all these activities are the most common activities mentioned in the text. We don't have any mentions, or and there may be an odd inscription that gets discovered uh, in the future, but so far we don't have any mentions of, for example, it's been a great year, uh, the rains were abundant, I had uh, several children, I got married. This, type, these, this aspect of the author's lives is not known from the inscription. So they were writing primarily about uh, events that caused them worry, that caused them distress. And oftentimes, when in the narrative they produce these texts saying, for example, uh, we, uh, I, uh, the, and the inscriptions are always set in the third person. So the way the, stru the structure of the inscription looks like this, the author would write his name and his genealogy. Sometimes the genealogies can be two generations. The longest genealogy is 20 generations. And uh, so going quite far back in time, the write the genealogy and then a narrative section, which begins with wa and, and a narrative like wa ashraqa, and he set off on a migration, wa ghazaza, and he went on a, 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 a raid, wa latathara hasamai, and he awaited the rains. And then once you have that narrative section and then following the narrative section, a prayer and curse are usually introduced. So, and then the prayer would be addressed to the gods. Uh, there were many gods uh, that these nomads worshipped, asking them to provide security, to provide abundance, to provide uh, or to send the rains when the rains were were, were uh, delayed. So we see that the prayer component goes back and is semantically connected to the narrative. And Following the prayer component, you often get curses. Authors were very worried that their texts would be effaced by passerbys. And so they would protect their texts with curses on anyone who would efface them. And, you, and, and these curses can be quite elaborate. The most common curse is may the one, may he who would efface this inscription go blind. But sometimes they'll add other kinds of ailments. May he uh, go, uh, be lame, may several illnesses afflict him, may, uh, the list can go on and on. Uh, but the, it's clear from these types of texts that the authors wanted their texts to be preserved and to be seen by others. And they were protecting them with curses. And, uh, and sometimes another prayer is added, asking uh, anyone who sees their texts to read it or invoke it, saying whoever reads or invokes this text, may they have may they be secure, may they have abundance, and things of that sort. So the authors produce these texts with very very aware of there being an audience, having an audience in mind, and the texts are meant to be interacted with, right? And this sort of connects to what we see centuries later in pre-Islamic Arabic poetry, uh, the uh, custom of stopping at a campsite and remembering lost loved ones and uh, mourning for them. And what this what what happens with Safiyyidik is that it adds a textual component to that kind of ritual. So when we have texts by Safiyyidik authors where they stop at a campsite and they find the inscription of a loved one and they read it and then they record their mourning for the absent beloved. Uh, just as you find in pre-Islamic Arabic poetry, 
except that while the pre-Islamic Arabian Arabic poets didn't have that textual uh, dimension and they were left to infer, they were wondering whose campsite this could be and they were in, in, in thinking that it belonged to someone that they loved, the Safiidic writers could know exactly who was there in, in former times because of these inscriptions. And oftentimes these can span generations. So individuals will record finding the inscription of their ancestor or of their grandfather. So the word for grandfather and ancestor is, is the same in Safiidic. And so finding the inscription of their, their ancestor or grandfather and weeping for him, remembering him. And several individuals could, so the, so the inscriptions themselves, even if it's just a name, could in, 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 in this uh, cultural context serve as a memorial text. Every, every inscription, in fact, every inscription which is just a name over time becomes a memorial text. And those who find that inscription can then uh, remember and weep and, uh, and, uh, and grieve for lost uh, loved ones or dead loved ones. Mm. So interesting. Um, I mean, there's such a kind of trope in the study of nomadic peoples that nomads don't leave written records um, and that all kind of histories um, or traditions of nomadic peoples are only transmitted orally and can't be found in writing. Um, and so that's such an interesting it's kind of counterpoint to that notion to suggest that nomads can um, transmit you know, records and genealogy and kind of memory and senses of ancestral identity um, in writing and in textual absolutely. form as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the remarkable things is even though these nomads had an alphabet, had a writing tradition, uh, the corpus of Safiidic inscriptions is around, of, of known and published Safiidic inscriptions now is about 50,000 texts. The vast majority of those texts are names, though. But even when we look at the narrative texts, they follow these strict formulae. The vast majority of them are talking about pasturing, migrating, awaiting the rains, going on raids, these types of activities. So they're very formulaic. Despite having, the, uh, despite having an alphabet, a writing tradition, a script, the nomads did not seem to record their oral literature on, on rock. We have in this huge corpus of 50,000 texts only two examples of oral liter of their literature, two poems, or a poem and a song. One is a, a poem that uh, is a, a short three-line poem that seems to be related to the Canaanite bale cycle, right? Uh, and it just records a, the mythological uh, death of, of, of Baal. Uh, which was a god that they worshipped. And the other poem seems to have been a war song, a song that was sung before going on a raid. And those are the only two examples of oral of their oral literature being recorded on rock. So that speaks to how rigidly formulaic their writing tradition was. Despite having the ability to write, they did not write whatever came to their mind, and they did not put it put down in, uh, on the stone their oral literature. They mainly recorded their genealogies and these uh, a very limited rep repertoire of narratives, along with prayers and curses. Yeah. Interesting. Um, 
And so who, I mean, do you have a sense of who would have been creating these inscriptions? Like I know things like literacy rates in the ancient periods is very hard to reconstruct, but do you have a sense from things like the names, what the identities were of the people who were actually able to produce written inscriptions and are there patterns is like are they mostly male names does it seem like it's a kind of the elite like in your research which focuses or in this book which focuses on the religion um among the nomads of pre-islamic arabia does it seem like it's a religious elite possibly that's creating these inscriptions or what are the kind of demographics of the authorship of these texts yeah that's a very good question the uh texts themselves are overwhelmingly produced by men. There are, there's under, uh, out of this entire corpus, there seem to be, there there are less than a hundred inscriptions produced by women. And here, produced is a a very tricky term because we, because all of the inscriptions are in the third person and because most of the inscriptions are just names, it's not really clear that the name contained in the inscription is also the name of the author. It is possible that others were writing inscriptions for their kin's people, right? But given that, less than a hundred texts contain the names of women in the genealogical section. Uh, so it seems to have been primarily a male activity, and it was an activity that that may fit the context that uh, uh, that these inscriptions were carved during periods of waiting, like waiting to raid or watching animals. Maybe it was primarily males who were uh, pasturing animals, who were out with the animals pasturing them. Women may have been back at the campsite. Uh, and in that context, they may have been much too busy to sit down and produce inscriptions. Uh, what's fascinating, too, is that the inscriptions, when authors introduce or nominal authors introduce themselves, they only give their genealogy. We don't, most of the text, almost nearly virtually all the texts contain only personal names and sometimes tribal affiliations, which tribe they belong to or which city they came from. There's a small minority of inscriptions that are produced by town dwellers and they will give in their genealogy section a, a gentilic adjective connecting themselves to a town or a city. Uh, so we have, for example, uh, an inscription by a man who comes from Bosra, uh, great city of southern Syria, Roman city in southern Syria. And so uh, there's another inscription uh, by uh, the nominal author will say it's by a man named Gaius. And the uh, uh, and he's called Thu al-Rum, from the lineage of Rome. So he's a, seems to be a Roman soldier of some sort maybe may i doubt that he wrote the inscription itself it seems that a nomad wrote the inscription for him and and uh and gave him a lineage to rome in that sense so when when the nomads talk about their lineages they use the phrase meaning of the lineage or of the people and the name of the tribe and so they conceptualized rome in their in a tribal way and they see they they called him of the tribe or of the lineage of rome uh, but we don't have any attestations, of, for example, of different um, ranks within society. So we don't have any inscriptions where the author calls himself, for example, a priest 
or a sheikh or anything of that sort. So they're very they're they're neutral in that way. They only introduce th- themselves by names, and we don't really know what their status was within their society. Surely, some of these texts were produced by tribal leaders, but they never state themselves as such, right? So we can only infer that there must have been a priestly cl- uh, class. Uh, uh, you know, there's uh, comparative evidence which suggests that, or that there were soothsayers, kohan, for example. That these these types of offices existed. We we can uh, infer that based on uh, looking at uh, what we know about pre-Islamic Arabian uh, tribes from uh, later Islamic sources, and of course, uh, what outside writers were, uh, uh, how outside writers describe pre-Islamic Arabian society. But none of these uh, positions, none of these offices, show up in the inscriptions. So it's really unclear. I would say it's really unclear how widespread literacy was. If we look at it at face value and we assume that everyone who uh, wrote, everyone who uh, uh, who's mentioned in the inscription is also the author of that inscription, that is everyone wrote their own inscription, then you look at a corpus of, let's say, 50,000 texts spread out over uh, four centuries, it doesn't quite imply mass literacy, right? If you spread it out evenly. But at the same time, uh, there is evidence that people wrote inscriptions for others. So that complicates the picture as well. If people were writing inscriptions for other people, then it would suggest that literacy was even less widespread than we we could imagine. But still, uh, the number of inscriptions and their contents do suggest that literacy was much more widespread among the nomads than we were previously led to believe. Right. Our image of pre-Islamic Arabia was that the nomads were illiterate, did not know writing. And uh, and these inscriptions really speak against that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I think what you said earlier also about um, the fact that so many of these inscriptions contain curses and sort of warnings against um, defacing them or removing them, things like that to me do imply an awareness or a belief that a lot of people who would encounter that inscription could read it. Um, so it does It does seem to me like at least being able to read text, at least in, with some level of ability, would yeah. have been fairly widespread. Yeah, it would seem so. And also the, the fact that people find the inscriptions of others, record finding the inscriptions of others, and sometimes even record the oral blessing they, 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 they make for for the lost individual. So uh, uh, one person, or one, one, one Safiatic writer, for example, finds the inscription of a, of a lost beloved and he, and, and, and he makes a, a, a blessing saying that may his, may his tribe, may his lineage be long lived, right? And so he makes that blessing for him, but that usually happens orally. And in the inscription, he says, وَقَالَ and he said, and then he gives a quotation of what he said it's something that was usually happening orally we get a tiny glimpse of it in rock when these writers and small minority of these writers chose to write down what they were saying orally that's how it survives uh, to us now the Safiatic script is pretty simple it's 28 characters eat one character uh, for each consonantal phoneme in the language and the Safiatic writers seem to have been writing in their vernacular so the only thing one needed to become literate was to learn this repertoire of 28 characters. 
And that isn't a huge task. So it's not like if we look at the Arabic speakers in the Nabataean realm, in order to become literate there, you not only needed to learn the alphabet, but you also needed to learn another language because they were writing in the Aramaic language. So there was a second barrier to literacy. Whereas among the nomads, they were writing in their vernacular. They were writing, from what we can tell phonetically, syllable by syllable. So it really wasn't too difficult to learn how to read and write. It's simply a matter of whether that activity interested people enough, right? Uh, but the, uh, and the, yeah, the, the, it's still a puzzle how writing came to the nomads. How did these nomads end up with their own script? Uh, the uh, Michael McDonald uh, advanced the hypothesis that nomads visiting oases saw writing being used at these oases and picked it up from there and brought it back to the desert with them, which is a very reasonable hypothesis. The only trouble is, is that from the very beginning, the scripts of the nomads are very different from the scripts of oasis dwellers. So there's a missing link. There still needs to find that missing link that transfers that the oasis scripts to the nomads. But once the nomads have writing, it seems to diffuse to other nomadic groups. And when we look to uh, Arabia, to Saudi Arabia today, there is a stunning diversity in alphabetic traditions. It's almost like every region had its own alphabet, its own peculiar, particular letter shapes and uh, writing traditions. And these writing traditions differed from each other, not only in terms of the alphabets, but also the formulae that they used to express themselves. So I talked in, uh, briefly about the Safiitic formulae, right? The kinds of things that Safiitic writers would write. If we go to Southern Jordan, to the area of the Hisma, and there's another script there that scholars call Hismaic, it's related to Safiitic, but they have complete, they have a very different writing formula. They're not writing about the same things that the Safiitic writers are writing about. If we go into North Arabia, into, into Northwestern Arabia around uh, Hegra, uh, uh, modern Medayan Saleh, the nomads there also have their own script, but very different writing formulae. They aren't writing about the same things the Safiitic writers are writing about. In fact, almost all of their inscriptions begin with I am, something that you never get at Safiitic, I am so-and-so, uh, lover of so-and-so. And so they're kind of, uh, they, they are, uh, uh, and, and, or, or in another corpus, they begin with wadad so-and-so, uh, fa so-and-so. So that is so-and-so loves or greets another person, a companion. And it's remarkable because in both of those cases, these writers never stray from the formulae. So not only did these, not only did different nomadic groups employ different scripts, but they also employed different writing formulae that they rarely strayed from. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think another kind of thing we tend to imagine, perhaps falsely, is that these groups, um, or that the you know nomadic groups of pre-Islamic Arabia were fairly homogenous, um, and that they had quite a lot in common with each other. So that's an interesting insight into just kind of differences in writing cultures and writing practices and what that in turn could tell us about the differences between these individual populations. So can you, um, on that note, can you talk a bit more about the nomads specifically? You know, we've talked about pre-Islamic Arabia, we've talked about Safayetic, but what do we know about 
the nomads, you know, when you're talking about the nomads of pre-Islamic Arabia, what kind of nomadism are we talking about? What is the kind of subsistence method that was practiced? And what do we know, which I know we know vanishingly little, really, uh, but what do we know about like economic and political systems, interactions? You know, you've talked a little bit about what we might be able to hypothesize about the interactions of nomadic groups with outside powers, you know, sedentary empires like the Roman Empire and things like that. What do we know around that? Yeah, so the Safiatic inscriptions give us a lot of information uh, about the uh, the life ways of the people who produce those texts and their relationship with neighboring powers. So the from the inscriptions, we can see that the Safiatic nomads were engaging in seasonal migrations. They pastured camels and sheep and goats, and, and uh, they would seasonally migrate from the Black Desert, uh, that is the Basalt Desert, uh, in the uh, where they would spend their time uh, during dry seasons, and in the rainy season, they would migrate to east to the Hamad, uh, sand and mud desert, uh, where they would pasture their, their animals there. Uh, and we get inscriptions where Safiatic writers are, are producing texts in the Harra during the rainy season, complaining that the rains have not come, and 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 uh, invoking the gods to send the rains and respite. And so we can see that there's a seasonal migration that they're engaging in, but they're not going on these very long distance migrations that we know from uh, uh, later nom uh, nomads of the region. They don't seem we don't have any evidence that they're migrating all the way south to Hail in uh, in Saudi Arabia, for example. Their migration is actually quite short. Uh, they we don't have much evidence that they engaged in uh, in trade. There's one inscription where a Safiatic writer is acting as a guide for a group of Palmarines. So there's a group of people from Palmyra, presumably a trading caravan, and the Safiatic writer is, is, is acting as a khafir or a guide to guide them through the Harra. The, but they do seem... Uh, uh, they do seem to have had military connections with both the Nabataeans and the Roman Empire. There's evidence that the that the Romans conscripted Saf or uh, uh, Safiatic riding nomads into their military. There is a uh, a very interesting text. Uh, it's bi bilingual Safiatic Greek, and that's also another a good example of contact with the Roman Empire is that a number of Safiatic writers also seem to have known Greek as well. And they would on occasion produce texts in Greek, very simple texts in Greek. So we can't really speak to how well they knew the language, but they certainly knew the alphabet and they certainly knew enough to write their names and genealogies in Greek. And, uh, and these, uh, some Safiatic writers served in the Roman military. There's one inscription that uh, is carved by a, uh, a, I guess, a commander of a of a nomadic uh, troop, and in his troop there was a Roman uh, soldier called Marcus Magnus, and there was a Persian soldier as well called Ahumadaris. And so all three were serving together in the same troop. So per presumably a Persian mercenary, a Roman soldier, and a local Arabian nomad serving in the same, uh, I suppose it would have been a Roman uh, troop. And uh, 
And there's uh, Safiotic uh, authors record engaging in rebellions against settled people, against sometimes a very uh, ambiguous term, against the sultan. And the sultan is understood as the governor, local governor. Uh, the the same is true with the uh, with the with the Nabataeans. Some Safiotic inscriptions record being allies of the Nabataeans at other times going to war against the Nabataeans, sometimes cheering on the Nabataeans and their uh, conflicts with other nomadic tribes. So they were very, very well connected with the settled world. Uh, but so far, only a very small number of Safiotic texts have been discovered in uh, settled areas. The vat, so whenever these uh, uh, Safiotic writers would go on to, uh, if, if they made journeys or stayed in settled areas uh, seasonally, they didn't bother producing inscriptions there. The act, the, the, the custom of producing inscriptions was, seems to have been tied to the desert. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, there's even uh, some evidence of Safiotic writers being uh, or, or taking part in the uh, Roman navy. So there's a uh, there's an inscription with a drawing of a boat, and uh, and, say, and the author uh, describes, uh, you know, having served on this boat, uh, and so and and there are there's a small number of Safiotic inscriptions that were even produced at Pompeii, which suggests that these nomads that 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 members of these military units, Safiotic writing members of these military units, made it that far away, and over there they carved their names on a corridor. Just names. Unfortunately, we can't know very much more about them. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, and so from your research, what um, what do we know about religion and ritual practices among um, these nomads? You know, what do we know about deities um, and about ritual uh, or about rites in general? Yes, very good. So the what what interested me here is that almost everything that we knew about pre-Islamic Arabian religion came from outside sources. We have a few remarks that come from uh, Greek and, and, uh, and Roman writers. Uh, uh, some We have some references to Arabian gods and cuneiform sources, but nothing in the way of what these people really believed or how they practiced uh, uh, their uh, uh, what, what their rituals and rites were. Uh, the next major source for pre-Islamic Arabian religion comes from Islamic period sources. And these are polemical, obviously, and removed in time by several centuries. And from these uh, sources, we get the idea that the Arabians were worshipping anthropomorphic idols, uh, and oftentimes they are described in such a way to... Uh, create maximal contrast, maximum contrast with Islam, right? So they're polemical in that kind of way. It's hard to be, cert to be certain about the reliability of these sources as well. And, uh, and so what, what, what I saw with Safiyadik was an opportunity to uh, hear the voices of pre-Islamic Arabian, uh, th th those who practice traditional pre-Islamic Arabian religion, right? These texts were produced by practitioners of that religion, and weren't filtered by uh, uh, weren't filtered by trans, uh, uh, let's say transmission into the Islamic period and all of the uh, in that new polemical context, and were not recorded by outsiders. So these were uh, 
authentic voices. All right. And so what I thought, what, what, what I saw an opportunity to do was to create a sort of synthesis, gather everything we could say, all of this religious text in Safiyadik, and try to synthesize and understand what their worldview was like. And what we see, and these are things that are common throughout ancient Near Eastern religion, that the Safiyadik uh, inscriptions record rites like animal sacrifice, libation, pilgrimage, all of these things are known, but their motivations are made clear in the uh, in the Safiyadik inscriptions. So for example, sacrifice was often tied to the changing of seasons. There was a great uncertainty about, well, uh, about the coming of rains and the appropriate time and about, and, and seasonal change brought that kind of uncertainty. Migrations, which would also triggered migrations, and that's a, a, a big and dangerous event as well. And so Safiyadic writers record sacrificing, animal sacrifices to the deities so that they could have security in abundance during these migrations. Uh, the animals that the, the, the most of the texts that record sacrifice simply record sacrificing without mentioning the animal, but whatever the animal is mentioned, it seems to be a camel, right? Which would have been a particularly uh, prestigious uh, beast. And so th this seemed, camel sacrifice seems to have been the, uh, uh, the, the, the most important uh, kind of sacrifice for them. Uh, Libations as well, connected to uh, seasonal change, or uh, those are recorded. The uh, another major uh, aspect of Safiyadic religion seems to have been the pilgrimage, and their uh, pilgrimage seems to have been, or pilgrimage seems to have been annual, because we have at least one writer who dates his inscription to a pilgrimage, so it must have been an annual event. Uh, and the pilgrimages took Safiyadic writers outside of the Hama. One of the inscriptions uh, records making a pilgrimage to Sa'ir, or Sir, which is a city and temple of Baal Shanin in southern Syria. So pilgrimages brought the nomads into settled territory, where we unfortunately don't know from the inscriptions what kind of rites uh, they performed on these pilgrimages, but that they undertook them is clear. And uh, pilgrimages were also tied to weather. So there's this tremendous concern with weather and seasonal change. The pilgrimages were also tied to weather, and one inscription records uh, the the uh, records a drought the year the pil pilgrimage failed. So whatever it meant for the pilgrimage to fail, maybe the tribe couldn't make it to the pilgrim couldn't make the pilgrimage, or maybe they did it in a bad way. But whatever happened, the pilgrimage was considered a failure, and Safiyadic writers tied that to the appearance of drought. Right, so there's this tremendous uh, concern with with weather and influencing meteorological conditions through the performance of these rites. Uh, the the Safiyadic writers worshipped a uh, large pantheon of gods, but the most popular god of them all was Alat, and Alat is a pre-Islamic goddess that also gets mentioned in the Quran uh, in Islamic period sources. Her, uh, she is thought to have been the her, uh, her center of worship was thought to have been at Taif outside of Mecca, uh, but Alat here is the most popular goddess. She appears she appears almost fifteen hundred times in the text. Invocations to her uh, almost reach fifteen hundred uh, uh, invocations, and she <clears throat> seems to you you could invoke her for almost anything. 
right? You can invoke her for almost anything, any kind of boon. Uh, inscriptions record sacrifices to her as well, and uh, and and following Alat, there we know from the inscriptions that Alat was seen as the daughter of another deity called Rothau or Rothai, right? Could be there are two vocalizations, and uh, so in the in the Quran, Alat is uh, suggested to be the daughter of Allah. Um, and these inscriptions, uh, the Safidic inscription, sees the daughter of the deity, Rufai, and this deity is a very ancient one. He's attested in uh, Thamudic B, which I had mentioned earlier, in North Arabia, and he is one of the idols that was carried off from Adumatu, which is a city in northern Saudi Arabia, by the Assyrians. So it was a very ancient deity, and one of these deities that the Safidic writers share in common with those who produce texts in northern Saudi Arabia. Uh, and and Ruta as well can be invoked for any range of things. So they were so the deities were not necessarily specialized. Their powers could they they had power over uh, all domains of life. There is one specialized deity which is Baal Shamin or Baal Samin and, and, and probably in the Safedic pronunciation. And this uh, was the storm god. His name literally means master of the heavens. He's given an epithet in the Safedic inscriptions, Malik Hassanai, so master of the sky, master of the heavens. And this deity uh, seems to have been specialized in controlling and, and in charge of the rains. And, and, and I looked at the indications, I looked at whenever we get uh, authors recording in the narrative the delay of rains and drought, the vast majority of invocations that follow this are to Baal Samin, to provide respite, usually to send relief or to send the winds with rain. So this was the one specialized deity, whereas most of the other deities were not specialized. They could grant any kind of, of wish that you wanted. Uh, you could influence, and it seems that the performance of these rituals and rites was there to influence the deities. The deities were not necessarily concerned with humans, uh, and you had to bribe them in a way. You had to make sacrifices to them. You had to uh, uh, fulfill certain rites in order for them to grant you a boon. Uh, there were also local tribal deities. Uh, these were uh, called Ged, which uh, seems to be related to the Greek Tuche, uh, so uh, luck, fortune. And you had different Geds associated with different tribes, but not even just tribes, but also nations. There was a Ged of the Nabataeans, there was a Ged of the Romans. So there was, uh, so all of these nations had their own, let's say, uh, fortuna, if, if we uh, if we may make that uh, a parallel, and those could be invoked as well. And it seems in the same way they are able to grant any kind of wish, right? The the main specialized deity was Baal Samin, that was the one who just controlled the weather. But other deities could also influence the weather. So for example, you have an inscription where uh, that states. Uh, that Baal Samin had withheld the rains. And then so the author then turns to another god and asks that god to interfere and send the rains. So it seems that the, the divinities, although there were many uh, uh, gods, uh, uh, more than two dozen gods, the uh, they all had power over the range of, of, of nature and natural phenomena and things of this sort. What you don't get 
with the inscriptions. Again, these are the, because of the na- the narratives are always talking about uncertain events. We only have prayers to the gods to relieve them of the, that uncertainty, right? To grant security if going on a raid to grant booty, if uh, if if migrating to a grant abundance, uh, abundant herbage and, and things of that sort. So the uh, the spectrum of divine power we see uh, is is sort of limited to the kinds of uh, uh, statements that the compositional formulae restrict, right? Now, so you have in their divine world, you have a, 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 a hierarchy, perhaps a hierarchy of gods. At least we know that some were related as a family. We know Alat was the daughter of Ruchal. We don't know how the other gods were related, but you have a divine world. And the gods seem to have two different types of residences. One inscription refer, makes an invocation to all the gods that are in heaven. So we know that they that the Safedic writers seem to understand the gods, the deities as, as occupying a place in the sky. But at the same time, the deities seem to have earthly residence as well. So uh, the Safedic writers worshipped also uh, Dushara, Dusaras, the national god of the Nabataeans, and they call him the one from Rakmo, the one from Petra. The uh, Alat. Is, is invoked in a, a very interesting inscription as well. And she's called the goddess who was from in a place called Ain Mim Nun. And Ain Mim Nun could be, it's very tempting to see that as Amman, right, in Jordan, but it could be anything. It could be another toponym, uh, another place uh, that has been has been lost. There's no modern toponym in the region with that, uh, with that sequence of consonants. But it could be it could refer to something like that, and uh, how do you say it? The uh, so that so the gods seem to come from certain places on Earth as well. And those might be the center of their temples, right, where they were where they were worshipped. So you have this divine world, and then on the other side, there is this supernatural force that Safiedic writers refer to as Mim Nunya or Mane, and Mane translates, if we look in the Arabic dictionaries, translates as fate. And Safiedic writers record being stalked by fate. That fate lies in wait for them. Fate lies in wait for them. And they record prayers to the gods to deliver them, to grant them escape. And in funerary inscriptions, the dead are often described as Rahim Manai struck down by fate and so you get this image that there's you have the gods and then you have another force which is fate and that that force there is not like the gods you can't sacrifice to fate you can't invoke it you can't bribe it with the performance of rites it it's un, it doesn't listen it's 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 uh uh it's un, it's not concerned with humans in that kind of way and what it does is it stalks you and manifests, and when it, and when it, and when it, yeah, when it catches you, you die. It's a hunter, and all you can do to escape fate is to gain the favor of the gods, who can provide you with momentary escape. But there's a, and, and this is captured beautifully in a, uh, in a, in an inscription from from northern Jordan. A man uh, writes his name. He's called Masik. He writes his name, and. 
he says and he paused and he halted again going to water and remembered the dead so oh Allah give long life to your righteous worshiper and protect him but from death there can be no deliverance and so you have this this idea that the gods they can prolong your life they can protect you but ultimately fate always overcomes and fate dooms the living so it's a very uh uh yeah grim worldview we have no evidence from the inscriptions that, that we can infer that they must have believed in some kind of under uh, uh, underworld some kind of afterlife but the evidence of the inscriptions never mention that there's no references at all in the inscriptions for the existence of an afterlife. And what's fascinating, too, is all of the invocations to the gods concern this life. All of the invocations for boons and for rewards and for security all concern the present life. We don't have any invocations that uh, uh, that invoke the gods for, for, for favors in an afterlife. And also the curses, the curses always affect this life as well to grant lameness, dumbness, the scab, mange, all of these kinds of afflictions on the living, but there are no invocations, there are no curses on the dead. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. So when you say that there's no sort of sense of um, an afterlife, does that also preclude from, you know, from the evidence that's available, does that also seem to preclude a belief in like, ghosts and spirits and things like that like among sort of later like nomads of the islamic period there's certainly like in traditions and oral traditions and written ones and archaeological you know there's very strong beliefs in sort of haunting um and the existence of the sort of spirits and ghosts of the dead kind of remaining attached to certain places does there seem to be a parallel to that in the earlier periods I, I really wish we had the inscription evidence for something like that, but unfortunately, right. even 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 uh, spirits like jinn, right, which uh, we know from uh, from Islamic sources, that was a pre-Islamic belief as well. But we simply don't have any evidence for the belief in, in things like spirits or jinn, and none of these things have appeared in the inscriptions. Some of the figurative rock art depicts images of, of, of creatures that are not easily interpreted as human beings, but we don't know what they are. Uh, that's the problem, right? Are they depictions of divinities? Are they depictions of spirits? We, we just can't know. Yeah. But the, yeah, the inscriptions don't mention things like spirits as such or, and jinn, for example, the jinn have not appeared in any of the inscriptions. So we have no evidence that these, that the Safedic writing nomads believed in, in jinn as such. But the absence of a belief in the afterlife is something that uh, it, it, that Islamic period sources uh, see as characteristic of pre-Islamic Arabians. So one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the things that, for example, the Meccan audience rejected when Muhammad was preaching about uh, was preaching his monotheism. One of the things that they could not accept was the idea that they would be brought back to life and judged. They thought when you were dead, you were dead, and that there would be no resurrection and afterlife as such. So, uh, so it's possible that uh, 
that that reflects a genuine uh, memory of pre-Islamic Arabian belief that when you died, you died. Did you just disappear? Or was there some kind of Sheol, some kind of underworld that, that you went to? We just don't know. But what is very clear from the inscriptions, I think, is that the gods didn't seem to have any influence over what happened to you in the afterlife. That there, there, is no, there are no invocations to the gods about the afterlife. So if there was an afterlife, it was sort of beyond their domain. And yeah, it's uh, uh, difficult to say more. Right. Well, that's fascinating. Um, so maybe just a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time. You know, so we've just touched on these that there's so many gaps in our knowledge still um, around the lives of the nomads of pre-Islamic Arabia. What are other avenues for kind of future research into this topic? Either, you know, further research based on the corpus of textual evidence, archaeological research. What, where is there still more work that could be done? Yes. So the uh, discovery of new inscriptions is always important because that every, every text has a potential of adding or, or, or bringing into, uh, allowing us to make a higher resolution image of this, uh, of their religious world uh, and their cultural world as well. But one of the most promising avenues of future research is archaeological epigraphic and archaeological. So in the book, I talk about uh, burial customs. And we were able to examine a site that was very fast, that was a very interesting site that had several, what I think are burial cairns, small burial cairns that are called uh, nafs, similar to the uh, nafsat or nafs, uh, similar to the nefesh in, in uh, Northwest Semitic and, uh, and, and a number of funerary inscriptions at the site. So I was able to describe the site, but because we didn't have an archaeological component, we weren't able to excavate and see if there were any remains, any human remains there, and to really confirm whether uh, how, how, this bur- how their burial practices, for example, uh, went. And so I think future research with not just epigraphic, but having a strong archaeological component will end up shedding a lot of light on... Uh, on how uh, religion and burial ritual intersect. Mm, that's really exciting. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, this was fascinating. I learned a lot, and it's really incredible how you're able to paint such a rich picture of the lives and of the kind of worldviews um, of the nomads of pre-Islamic Arabia based on relatively little evidence. Um, So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you.